Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. This is episode number five of the seven episode repost of the sermon series from 2012 called Touchy Issues out of the book of 1 Corinthians. We are we are almost through this seven episode series. This week you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson as he talks about divorce and how we can pursue Christ as we think about that issue. If this sparks your interest to look into this topic more in depth, you can find resources about this on the Engage and Equip blog, a link to which can be found in the description. Thanks for listening. If you've um, got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you, and the page number is 1778. 1778. I'm going to read um, uh, verses 10 to 17 in 1 Corinthians 7. And this is the touchiest of the issues. The Touchy Issues series, you might have thought a few weeks ago when I preached on same-sex attraction, homosexuality, that was the touchiest issue. That was not the touchiest issue. This is the touchiest issue, divorce. And um, we're going to see what, we'll just see what happens. Starting in verse 10, Apostle writes, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or a woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that God assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Uh, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, in order of review, verses 17 through till 24 are the heart of this chapter, chapter 7, which is on marital status, essentially. Singleness, divorce, marriage, and how Christians live in that stuff. And there's these verses in the middle that don't appear to be about that, but they are about that. And the main way they demonstrate it is because in these verses, three times it's repeated, nevertheless, each one should remain in the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the situation in life he was in when God called him. Verse 24, brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called them to. And the main point that is made throughout there is that when Jesus calls a man or a woman to salvation, he does not call him or her into a freedom that means you can go and change your circumstances and be whoever you want to be. But that he calls you to be his within the circumstance that you're in to be transformed within it. Which means every kind of person can be boiled down to in one being in one of two categories. Either you're the kind of person that seeks your happiness, health, and holiness by changing your circumstances into more, more fa- a more favorable environment for you to emotionally succeed. 
or you're the kind of person who accepts Jesus in the situation you're in, seeking to be personally transformed so you can be happy, healthy, holy, and whatever within the situation you find yourself in. And only one of those two options is Christian. The gospel teaches that when Jesus saves someone, he saves them in the situation that they're in, especially when their duty and the scriptures constrain them to that place. It doesn't mean you can't change anything. He says explicitly, if you're in slavery and you can, be, and you can get your freedom, go ahead and do it. Or if you're, married, if you're single and you feel like you ought to marry and there's somebody you can marry who belongs to the Lord, go ahead and do it. You haven't sinned. But in some of these other situations, you, you don't have a choice. And you can't change your situation. You have to be changed in it. Does that make sense? Now, the issue to today that that applies to in relationship to marital status is the whole question of divorce. I said a couple weeks ago that one of the reasons this chapter is so important is in, and why this is talked about in relationship to marital status is because marital status is one of the areas where we are most likely to give ourselves the excuse to do whatever we want. There are lots of duties that we have that are fine, fairly minor or peripheral where, you know, even if obeying God doesn't seem like the most advantageous thing for us, we'll stick with it anyway and, you know, kind of do that because, you know, we don't want to make God mad at us. But in the area of whether or not to stay single or how to live out our singleness or whether to get married or how to stay married or whether or not to get a divorce or not get a divorce, all that stuff, that is just too central to how we understand our happiness and our freedom and what should we should be allowed to do for us to just say, well, I'll just do what Jesus wants. And that's one of the reasons I think Paul is so explicit in this chapter, to take away our personal blindness and our willingness to give ourselves the excuse to do what we want. I mean, you're probably familiar with the way um, popular morality is today. And popular morality can basically be summed up like this. Um, if you shouldn't do something that's wrong unless you really feel like you have to, and in that case, it would be wrong not to do it because you wouldn't be being honest with yourself. It just about sums up modern morality. And it just about sums up most people's views on divorce. Well, divorce is regrettable, and you really shouldn't do it unless you really feel like you need to, and then you have to do it because if you wouldn't be doing it, you wouldn't be honest and true to yourself. So before I really get into this, I probably need to, I need to make a little bit of a disclaimer on this, that this is the touchiest issue that I know about. And um, my feeling is that the church, in a desire to be gracious... Um, has actually kind of lost its spine on this. Because the, the actual biblical position is so <laughs> unacceptable to the modern mindset that um, bending it a little bit just seems more reasonable. You know, if we can get pe less divorces, isn't that better, Nick, than actually say the biblical position and have people reject it out of hand altogether. Um, and I just, honestly, I just fear God more than that. I don't think I could do that. I just got to go ahead and, so I'm going to try to say the way it is, which is, means this sermon is going to hurt up front, but then I've tried really hard to find the biblical hope in this. Whether you've been divorced, you've divorced somebody, um, wherever you are in relationship to divorce, I think that there are some very hopeful things in the Bible in relationship to this, and I've backloaded those. So you might feel like I'm hitting you hard up front, but I'm hoping you'll feel better when we get to the end, okay? Okay. Does anybody want to leave right now? Okay. Um, just context-wise, I think everybody realizes that um, we've got a pretty significant divorce rate culturally, right? People, people say, well, you know, it's 50% and it's 55 in the church, which isn't true. Um, but, you know, here's the correction. It's, it's only 43%. 
right? That's not very comforting, is it? It's not very comforting. Um, and one of the reasons why it's, it's that high, actually, is because of, since the middle, late, very late 60s, 69, I think, was California, and then all 50 states have, have accepted since then a no-fault divorce law, which makes marriage the only contract among human beings that could be terminated by either party for no reason. You don't have to actually say, we have this contract, it's void for this reason, make an accusation, that accusation has to be defended, and the other person has to be found guilty of the accusation in order to break the contract. Which is, which is kind of, I just find that to be very silly to the point of being inhuman. Under our present laws, I cannot dismiss my secretary because I think she's too old and I'd like to employ a younger, prettier one, but I can dismiss my wife because I think she's too old and I'd like to employ a younger, prettier one. Now, that may be modern, but I would say it's also inhuman. In fact, in the first service, I actually had something I had written out that I had signed with two witnesses um, that said this. I acknowledge that when I engaged in marriage vows to Alexi Gibson, we engaged in a specific form known as Christian marriage. My intention in the contract was not only to promise in a legally binding way to fulfill whatever civil laws the state applies to this status, but to legally and bindingly contract with her to fulfill as a husband all of the biblical ordinances with the same legal force. Specifically, this means at least that I waive all rights to divorce under no-fault laws and that I must prove that she has forsaken our covenant and contract through long-term abandonment or adultery. Otherwise, I should have no legal right to forsake my responsibilities that I have vowed as husband at our wedding or should be made to pay dearly for doing so. It is my intention that our wedding vows and the, and the condition of my promise be unilaterally and this be intended upon myself. Blah, 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 blah. And I gave that to her and a lawyer will surely come to me afterwards and say that's not legally binding, at which point I will ask him to help me write a legally binding one because I think no-fault divorce is inhuman. Why should my wife sit at home bearing our third child, not having gotten a master's degree, and having to wonder if one day I will come home and undo the vow that I made to her before God till death do us part? It's terrible. To which one Columbia um, professor stated, well, the great thing about no-fault divorces is that women have a clear way of rethinking their place in the world, recognizing that marriage can be dissolved at any time, and maybe they do need to go out and get that master's degree, which I think is the dumbest thing I've ever heard just about in the history of the world. Now I'm going to tell you what I really think about that. One of the other, one of the other problems, one of the other problems with no-fault divorce is it, 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 makes, it makes pretend that both parties in divorce are in morally equal positions, which is completely false. There's a common truism that is in fact true that no, no divorce is 100%, 0%. That's true. But also no divorce is 50-50. And somebody, and if there is a divorce, somebody gives up. And you get like 30% just for that bit. And so um, it reminds me of a quote from William F. Buckley Jr. when comparing the United States and the Soviet Union, where he said, If there is one kind of person who pushes old ladies in front of buses, and another sort that pushes them out of the way of buses, it simply will not do to call them both the sort of people that push old ladies around. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> People are not morally equal in divorces. And, um, and we are one of the only societies in the history of the world in which there is more protection afforded us in the factory or on the farm than in the home. Think of that.
there's also been a spate of writing recently to basically say that divorce doesn't really hurt kids all that much. You know, there's this idea that, well, you know, if you get divorced and the marriage was real bad beforehand and so the kids were getting killed anyway, so whatever problems they have afterwards they would have had beforehand or, or, you know, if you do the right things, you can really mitigate the problems anyway and if you just don't fight afterwards, these... um, And that's not completely untrue because the more we know about divorce's effects, the more we can try to do to minimize the effects on kids. But, you know, here's one list of things kids, the effects that sometimes kids have. Each kid, it's different. And I just didn't put up all the rest of them. That's the font I had to put it in to kind of get in the neighborhood. You can go online and make that bigger to read it all. But one of the things that we, we need to face is that um, even in the church, we aren't much better, at least in this sense. I remember the first time a couple came to me to tell me that they were probably going to get a divorce um, in my office as a pastor. They came in for counseling, they called it. And um, I remember talking with Doug, the senior pastor of our church, afterwards, because this was one of the, you know, like maybe the first, first or second people this had happened with. And he said, Nick, one of the things you're going to have to realize about being a pastor is that when people come in to have that conversation with you, our marriage is really in trouble and, you know, I really want to work on it, but I just don't know if my spouse is into it. They've really come for you to bless their divorce. They, ha- they have not come because they have been jerks for 15 years and that now they really want to work out of that. And they, they want to repent and they want to turn around. They want to be different people. They want to apply the gospel to their life. They're ready to be self-sacrificial. That's not what's happening. What's happening is they are going to get a divorce They're going to go to the obligatory two or three counseling sessions with a psychologist, and they're going to come to you to talk a couple of times so that they can't look bad in front of the judge. And they would really like you as their pastor to tell them that God is okay with their divorce. And they won't say that's why they're there, but that is why they're there. And you just got to decide if you're going to do that or not. That's all there is to it. And don't be shocked when they sound like they're really into doing better, and then in three weeks you hear that they've served papers on each other. And I saw that happen just a pile of times. For every one person that came, came to me or, or the people in our church that were ready to help people work on these things as a couple, um, seven or eight really came for a, mar- a divorce blessing as that came because they had issues in their marriage and they really wanted to be different and for things to get better. For every one person I referred to a counselor, you know, who actually went more than once and the counselor didn't tell me after the first thing, oh, she or he's, he's just going through the motions so that he doesn't look bad at the divorce hearings. There were five, six, seven, eight of those for every one that came in, and the counselor was like, I think they might actually want to work on their marriage. Listen to this passage from Malachi. Uh, where is it here? There it is. From Malachi 2, 14 to 17. There's this time where the, the Jews have come back from exile, and they're in Israel, but things aren't going well. It's clear that they're under God's curse, and even though they're supposed to be in the land of blessing. And they're, they're trying to figure out this why, and they, they ask the Lord, and his message comes through this prophet, Malachi, who says this, You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are each other's? No. In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I, 
hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So what I want to try to do this morning is to go through the biblical view on divorce, in, particularly in relation to 1 Corinthians 7, but I'll bring in the stuff for Matthew because there is a, some, some statements there that are relevant. And the first unilateral statement of Scripture in relationship to divorce is not to do it. The first verses in verse 10 and 11 where Paul is speaking to two Christians who are married. He's assuming both are believers, they're regenerative heart, they believe in Jesus, they've been justified by faith, their life is supposed to belong to God. He says if you've got two people for whom that's true about, here's, 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 the, here's the marriage gig. And he says, he says, not me, but the Lord, meaning, not that it's not scripture, but he's saying, Jesus is on the record on this one. Like, he actually said something on this one, and so I'm just quoting him, and that is, you must not divorce. Verse 10 7, uh, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, meaning I'm quoting Jesus Christ, a wife must not separate from her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, it's, it's stated like this slightly, slightly differently for the genders because in this legal context, it's very difficult for a wife to bring a legal divorce against her husband. So the, the way a wife would divorce would just be to leave. She just separates. Whereas the man could actually write a certificate of divorce and legally divorce his wife. And what he was saying is, the wife can't do it the passive way, and the husband can't do it the aggressive way. Neither one can do it. You've got to get along. There's only one option. That option is to get along, to figure out a way to do it. And now, the great thing about this is, this is a very high view of God's grace, isn't it? What he's saying is, Christian faith has the potential to be so transformative that he can categorically say this. Isn't that wild? I mean, think about, there's some bad matches out there, right? You know, I mean, just look at, I mean, some people is just like, you just, you just think it was like, people rolled dice and put them together. I mean, it's like the only way to figure out that those people got together. But, what he's saying is, if you've got two regenerate people whose lives belong to Jesus, you can make it, you can make it happen. You might have to accept, just accept 80% of them and interact with 20. I mean, there's, there's different ways to manage it, but that's the only option you've got. Now, one of the things that people respond with this is to say, Nick, listen, that is just so, so, so hopelessly out of date. I mean, sure, in ancient cultures, they were more religious and traditional and all those kinds of things. And you could tell people to do stuff, and they would actually do it. And, you know, men wanted to lock women in the kitchen, and so they came up with these sorts of rules. And, um, but, you know, I mean, this is, this is 2013. This is Madison, Wisconsin, you know, the most progressive state in America. I mean, we don't—this is not going to fly here. And to, to which my response, you know, poppycock— because um, Paul, the culture in which Paul spoke, divorce was more rampant than now, not less. This was not, this was not some kind of like, well, you know, everybody's conservative anyway, so let me just say this. Um, Seneca, one of the uh, great orders of the Greek world, Roman, Greco-Roman world, said this, Unchastity is the greatest evil of our times. Women do not blush at divorce, and many number their years not by the number of councils, but by the number of their husbands. Like, they don't count by presidents. They just count by how many husbands they've got, they've had. They leave their home to marry, and they marry in order to divorce. In fact, in Latin, 
Um, apparently, it always sounds better in Latin, um, the statement, to us race tibi habito, which it roughly translated means, go get your stuff, was all that was necessary in order to secure a divorce. And you say, well, Nick, but yeah, but, but Paul was, was Jewish. The Jews were like so much more religiously conservative, surely, that their divorce was really frowned upon. So really this is Judaism versus Greco-Roman. I mean, this is really just a historical— No, not really. Because in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come and argue with Jesus about this, um, they're assuming— that the view on divorce is, as long as a husband legally writes out a certificate of divorce, a husband can divorce his wife, his wife for any reason. In fact, Hillel, one of the rabbis of the time, said that you sh- it shouldn't be for frivolous reasons, but technically, a husband can divorce his wife for burning dinner. Because Deuteronomy 24, 1 says that if a wife displeases him, he can write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's what the scripture says, which is taking it terribly out of context, but we'll get to that in a minute. And Tertullian, born in 160 AD, once said, even about in relationship to the Christian church, so the church has been pretty far gone on this too before, and has done something with it. He said, divorce is now prayed for as if it were the proper sequel to marriage. That's the ancient world. Nothing's changed. It's not different. We're not different now. People have always been selfish. People have always not wanted to get along. People have always thought the other person added more to the problem than they did. Everybody thought they were the exception, not the rule, and everybody thought they should be allowed to get a divorce. And that that, that everybody's always romanticized divorce, that, oh, we'll be happier if we do go do this and start things over. And starting a new relationship has always been more hormonally exciting. None of that's ever changed. And it's just modern chauvinism to think that we're somehow fundamentally different. It may just be easier now because of the way we work our money electronically. If you look at Matthew 19, some of the Pharisees, and listen, when I say, when people hear Pharisees, they go, oh yeah, those religious hypocrites. No, listen, when you hear Pharisees, you should think good men who thought they were doing the right thing by God. They come to Jesus and they go, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? He's, asking, he's saying that not because they heard that's Jesus' view. That's their view, and they're saying if Jesus will sign on to it. Because that was the standard view among Pharisees, these religious teachers across the countryside of Israel. Haven't you read, he replied, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Apparently, apparently God the Father also believes this is the key passage, because that's the passage he quoted in Malachi 2. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Do you see what he's saying? They say, no, no, no. The most important passage isn't Genesis 2.24. The most important passage is Deuteronomy 24.1. To which Jesus says, you totally misinterpreted that. Jesus replied, no, 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 no. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it's been given, meaning those to whom Jesus, the Spirit, has opened their heart to accept this difficult thing to accept. Now, 
What, what that means is, is that God's intention when he created men and women for each other, for marriage, that when they come together, they would become one flesh. It says in Malachi, in both flesh and spirit. So that as one they belong to him, and, it, and as one they merit, says in Ephesians 5, the relationship of Christ and his church, and the relationship of God with the cosmos. That they create this new nation called the family, and that family is completely indivisible. That, and what he's saying is, he says, listen, the only reason you didn't see that was because of the hardness of your heart. You see, in Deuteronomy 24.1, what it says is, that if a man and woman get married and the husband finds out something, quote, indecent about her, he can, if he wants to, write her a certificate of divorce and send her away, which makes it legally possible for her to remarry. That's why he has to give the certificate of divorce so she can't be held in legal limbo. If she marries another guy, it explicitly says no matter what happens there, whether they get divorced or whether he dies, they can never marry again. That's what the command is. The command is about not holding a woman in legal limbo and making divorce such that it can't be willy-nilly. You can't go back and forth and be passing people around. It is an irrevocable decision and change because marriage is that important. From which they took, wait a second, he said we could write a certificate of divorce and send women off. The word indecent is in reference to fraud. That is, that a guy thinks he's marrying a virgin. It turns out she's not. Hence, Luke chapter 1. Joseph and Mary are engaged. That's binding marriage because when it says that he found out she was pregnant, i.e. probably not a virgin, right? He, what did he make plans to do, it says? Divorce her, right? Under Deuteronomy 24, 1. So Jesus is just upholding what Deuteronomy says. He's not coming up with a new rule. The rule in Deuteronomy 24.1 is marital infidelity. For marital infidelity, you can get a divorce, but even in that case, you've got to write a certificate of divorce so that you can't hold the woman in legal limbo. But he said the whole point of what marriage is isn't found in Deuteronomy 24. It's found in Genesis 2, when God creates men and women to be one flesh forever. Such that you can do all you want with certificates of divorce. You see what he's saying with certificates? You can write yourself a certificate of divorce to say you're divorced. You're not divorced. Right? Because he can turn around and he can say, because if you go off and marry somebody else, what do you do? You've committed adultery. Why, well, why is adultery? The whole assumption is because the marriage isn't over. It, that was a nice piece of paper you created to say that you were divorced, and maybe it's recognized by the civil authorities of your land. But you're not divorced. At least not until the covenant is actually broken through the real sin of adultery, which is the only main criteria, and at least in Deuteronomy 24, for which that's possible. Do you see how that works? To which I, it was Charles Williams, Charles Williams, who once said that adultery is bad morals, but divorce is bad metaphysics. That is, when you, you commit adultery, you do something that's bad. When you get a divorce, you're denying reality. It's bad morals and bad philosophy. Does that make sense? Whether you like it or not, it makes sense, right? Um, let me say one more thing about this. It is a great grace from God to give us one option. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to have multiple options when the one thing you must do is so hard. I mean, if you're married to a wife and you just hate her guts and it's been like five or six years since you, it seems like she's even smiled at you, you, can, you, do, you do not need another option, right? If you've got a husband who just doesn't seem to care about anything you've ever contributed to the marriage, 
can only nitpick away about the way you parent and isn't pulling his weight around the whatever. You do not, you just don't need another option. And it is a wonderful grace from God to say, listen, you don't have another option. You better figure it out. I remember, I've probably talked about this before, but the, within the first couple of years Lexi and I got married, we, were, we both had buyer's remorse like no tomorrow. I mean, we just could not stand each other. And um, I, rem- I remember the moment where I realized that I was a Christian. I probably really was a Christian. And what that meant was I could not divorce this woman. And so I had two options. I could either have a long, terrible slog with a woman that I hated, or I could figure out a way to get along with this woman. That's it. Those are my options. And so that's what led me to my counseling professor, who led me to give me some advice, which led me to get on this road to go in a better direction. And at least one study that tried to measure this was um, what happens with unhappy couples that decide to stay together five years later? And a significant majority of them apparently label themselves as happy or very happy five years after they said they were very unhappy but stayed together. Because a lot of times unhappiness is temporary, and especially if you're going to have to live with it forever unless you do something about it, can, can be a little motivating. That's why morality often leads to happiness rather than keeps us from it. Don't believe that modern lie that it's morality that keeps us from being happy. It creates the environment for us to be human beings capable of real happiness and joy. All right, so then the first question out of everybody's mouth is what? Oh, okay, Nick. Surely, surely, there are between one and a hundred exceptions to this. Surely there are. And there, there actually there are in the Bible. There are a couple exceptions to this rule. Um, we, anyway, there are. But here's the, here's, there's a problem um, with talking about the exceptions. And um, I'm just going to read a section out of this book, Brave New Family, which is a compilation of G.K. Chesterton's writings. Most helpful book on family, divorce, singleness that I've read anything about um, from. And I like how Chesterton handles this problem with the exception. He says this. The difficulty is simply this. That if it, that if it comes to claiming exceptional treatment, the very people who will claim it will be those who least deserve it. The people who are quite convinced that they are superior are the very inferior people. The, me- the men who really think themselves extraordinary are the most ordinary rotters on the earth. If you say, nobody must steal the crown of England, then probably it will not be stolen. After that, probably the next best thing to say is, anybody may steal the crown of England, for then the crown might find its way to some honest and modest fellow. But if you say, those who feel themselves to have wild and wondrous souls, and they only may steal the crown of England, then you may be sure that there will be a rush for it of all the ragtag and bobtails of the universe, all the quack doctors and all the sham artists, all the demireps and drunken egotists, all the nationless adventurers, and criminal monomaniacs of the world. And so if you say that marriage is for the common people, but divorce is for the free and noble spirits, all the weakest and most selfish people will dash for divorce, while the few free and noble spirits you wish to help will very probably, because they are free and noble, go on wrestling with their marriage. For it is one of the marks of real dignity of character not to wish to separate oneself from the honor and tragedy of the whole tribe. All men are ordinary men, and extraordinary men are those who know it. The weakness of the proposition of the exception is that it takes no account of the problem of the disease of pride. 
It is the small soul that is sure it is the exception. It is the large soul that is only too proud to be the rule. In short, the great man is a man. It is always the tenth-rate man who is the superman. The, the problem, that's the, that's the problem with exceptions. The minute you say there is an exception, even though you've spent 50 hours blow-winding yourself red about the rule, everybody thinks that they're the exception. Every mean wife who's had a crossword from her husband imagines that she's been horrifyingly emotionally abused and should get out at the soonest possible moment. Every man whose wife isn't completely appreciative of his great nobility of playing video games six hours a day imagines that he is greatly underappreciated. Because after all, he is a stallion of masculine prowess. I mean, you just get this, this, this attitude of ourselves where it, and it just doesn't take into account the disease of pride. So, let me frame the exceptions with that. Now, there are basically two exceptions in Scripture. The first is in these verses. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Meaning, Jesus isn't on the record on this, but I'm telling you as somebody who knows what God thinks is what he's saying. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that is the only biblical place that really talks about separation. That is, that... If the marriage is so terrible that um, there is something irreconcilable and unbearable, truly, that there is the option of living single, but not of divorce and remarrying. So that does not, that's not one of the two exceptions in Scripture. But that is the general exception that is divine concession. Now, here's the problem. He doesn't actually tell you when that's appropriate. He just says, don't do this. But if you do it, you have to do it this way. Don't separate from your husband or husband. Don't separate from your wife. But if you do, you have to stay single or the only other option is to reconcile with your husband or your wife. That's the doctrine of separation. And you've got to figure out when something that you're not supposed to do, but there's a concession that in some cases you could do it, is appropriate. But you see here that it's not designed as a step toward divorce. Separation in this passage is not a step towards divorce. It's just a step towards somewhere else. It's just a step, step sideways. It's just, a, it's just an, a getting out of a situation. But it's not a moving forward or a moving backwards. It's just a different thing. And you've got two options. You can either stay there or you can find a way to go back. Now, the two biblical exceptions in relationship to divorce um, are essentially both passive. So if the question is, when is Christian divorce okay? The answer is, when it's passive. Assuming that adultery is the passive-aggressive way of getting a divorce. Right? Ad adultery is the way people who aren't man enough to actually divorce their wife go get divorces. Except for indiscretionary adultery, which there is a difference between those two. Indiscretionary adultery would be somebody who, for whatever reasons and problems and so on, falls into an adulterous relationship and then seeks to get out of it. Repents, recognizes what happened, they go back, the couple starts working on things, and they really are trying to reconcile. It's the, it's the guy who doesn't bother about divorcing his wife and just goes out and starts a new covenant, and then it just expects that all the work is well, let, let her do the paperwork and hire the lawyer, shall we? I mean, it's, it's essentially, adultery is abandonment. It's the passive-aggressive way of divorcing somebody. And therefore, a, a, a divorce because of somebody else's persistent adultery 
is a, is a passive divorce. It's a divorce of abandonment and is scripturally, scripturally allowed in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And the other, in this case, is just abandonment. I mean, he says, um, if you are living with a non-Christian, because the assumption is a Christian isn't going to leave, if you're living with a non-Christian, they choose that they're not going to live with you, and they leave, there's nothing you can do about that. And so, in that situation, you're free. Meaning, if they divorce you, what can you do about that? Nothing. And so, you're free. You've been divorced. And those are the only two really biblical examples. Now, um, one of the first things that happens when you say that is that this is the very next question. Wait a second. What about cruelty and substance abuse? Right? Were you thinking that? Are you thinking, wait a a second, Nick. What about somebody's beating up on somebody and what about substance abuse? And for that, um, honestly, I just need to refer you back to what I said about exceptions at the beginning. Um, This is a really tough one to deal with because I have seen spouses, usually women, who are legitimately physically abused. In which cases, I've been extremely thankful to see the law be able to step in and help. I have also seen men and women recognizing that they don't have a bigger fist than their spouse use these kinds of laws to extort the government into being a bigger fist against their spouse, the one that they don't have. I've seen, like, one of the things that drives me crazy is laws called battery laws. Battery, apparently, legally is um, any unwanted touch. Now, now listen, I'm okay with people getting arrested for touching other people unwantedly. I just think it's a sham to call it battery. If you charge somebody with battery, you should have to be battered, in my view. And I'm okay with having just two laws. There's an unwanted touch law, and there's a, I know kidding got battered, and the jury decides which is which. You show them pictures and so on, and that's how, because, here's what's going to happen, is people are going to abuse these laws until they're eviscerated in the mind of the public and the women who really need them. People are going to be like, oh, people are always abusing those laws. Who knows what really happened? And so when it comes to abuse, you know, I'll sit in my office and be like, well, I've been, ver- I've been verbally abused for years. And meanwhile, for the whole first five minutes of the session, she'd been verbally abusing her husband. But yet she's this abuse victim. That Really, I ought to bless her divorce because she needs to get out of here because her marriage is toxic. She's toxic. Right? So you've got to be really careful with this stuff. And that's one of the reasons why we have pastors and elders and processes of church discipline and so on. Because you're supposed to go to other people and say, help me. Help me see if it's me or if it's him or if it's her and what's going on and what are the patterns and how do I fix this. Because it's not good, but I'm not going to be so, so proud as to think that it's because it's this person's a huge idiot. In which cases, if it is just the other person, the church goes through the process of church discipline. We approach them with one person, see if they repent. We approach them with two person, see if they repent. If not, we take it to the elders, and then eventually we take it to the church. I mean, we, there, there are processes for this. The problem is nobody wants to get in them. Because they don't want other people meddling with things. They don't want anybody else's judgment involved. But if, you, if you're not willing to face other people's condemnation, you don't get other people's wisdom. 
And so what happens is everybody tries to figure this out privately. It usually can't get figured out privately. By the time they go to a counselor, they've already made plans to escape, and the whole thing's already blowing up and on fire. And so then we just go, yeah, it's not one of those two biblical things, but I've been abused, or he's a substance abuser, and so on. But in the very rare situations where you have something that somebody who's going to beat somebody to death or really hurt somebody or somebody who is substance abusing in a way that like they could your kids could get up get really hurt I'm willing to listen I'm willing to listen but for every one person I've had in my office for that who that's true of I've had 12 or 15 who want an exception. They don't have one of the two biblical ones, and so they want to call something abuse of some kind so that I have to bless their divorce. Do you see where I'm coming from? And I just don't think I can. So quickly, why stay? I, this was, I didn't cover this last hour, but I'm going to try to do it in this one. Um, and there are a few reasons in verses 13 to 14. And there's this really difficult section where it says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. That's really difficult. It doesn't mean salvation because in verse 16, there's this whole, he says, he says, husband, how would you know if you'll save your wife? Or wife, how do you know if you'll save your husband? Meaning it's very possible not to, however sanctified they are, whatever this means. So it doesn't mean salvation. What I think it means, and listen, there's lots of people who have commented on this. It's a very disputed verse. But the best as I can tell is, when you become a Christian and you're married to somebody who's not a Christian, against their will and for their benefit, you have dragged them into the covenant community of God to some extent. To the extent to which God is dealing with you, he is by definition dealing with your family. The good God does to you, he does to your family. The way God changes you, he, he does to your family. And it's always affecting your spouse. Your spouse has been dragged into God's covenant community, even if they don't want to be part of it. Kind of like in the Old Testament, when a foreigner would come into Israel but not become an Israelite. They had, like, all the rights of Israelites, and they got all these blessings, even though they weren't technically part of the covenant people of God. They could become part, but they could also be with the people as long as they obeyed the laws and get all the benefits, but not be an Israelite. It's kind of like that. And the hope is, is that through that flow of the benefits of grace, that person might come to conversion, the greatest benefit at all, of all. And the, the, what Paul is saying is, if you're a Christian, you should want that. You should want that. Is your spouse going to act unregenerate because they're not motivated by Jesus owning their life? Probably. Probably. But if you're a Christian, don't you want to be part of a conduit of God's grace to them, the most direct conduit of God's grace to them, to seek to draw them in? And by staying together, you become a more direct conduit to drawing in your children. Because what did Malachi 2 say the ultimate desire of the union of marriage for God was? You might call it antiquated, but what God explicitly says it is, that he wants a godly new generation raised up and educated, formed as people to know and love him. And frankly, that just takes decades, which is one of the reasons marriages must be permanent. And one of the things that makes it possible for those other children to create permanent marriages. So for, the, for your spouse, for your children— and then I could spend a whole lot more time to talk about for yourself and for the glory of God. But I want to I talk a little bit before we end about encouragement for those who have been divorced or who have divorced, meaning the passive and the active action in that. 
Um, because, because you might say, you know, like, there's, this, um, there's this scene in the Adam Sandler movie, Mr. Deeds, where there's this guy um, with a big cowboy hat from Texas, and he asks him, hey, what did you want to be when you were a kid? And he goes, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And he goes, why did you want to be a veterinarian? And he goes, I wanted to help sick animals. And he said, and what are you? He said, I own a chain of slaughterhouses. <laughs> And Adam Sandler's character says, you kind of you went a different way on that one, did you? And he goes like this. He goes, and you may feel that way after what I've said. I, I, I'll promise you, you read the whole Bible and you're honest with yourself. What I've told you is what it says. It, it's what it says. I haven't hidden anything from you. And so you, if, you, if you look at that and you've been divorced or either passively or you've been the divorcer, and you might look at me and go, Nick, What is there for me? And, and here's what I think there is for you. You might not know this, but um, God is the divorced God. God is the divorced God. The, the God that you follow if you're a Christian and, and the God that you worship is a God who has been through an enormously painful, messy, horrifyingly awful, including abuse and substance abuse, enormous cruelty, divorce. The ugliest divorce that has ever happened in the cosmos happened between God and his people. He is the divorced God. Um, the story is probably best summed up in Ezekiel chapter 16. And I'm going to read some of it, and then I'm going to kind of tell the rest of it in a more contemporized fashion, because if you keep going, it gets a little, it gets really, don't have your kid read it. Unless you read it first, okay? But, but this, is how the, this is how the wedding starts. I made you grow like a plant of the field. God speaking to his bride, Israel. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. And later I passed by and when I looked... And saw you were old enough for, I saw you were old enough for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I, I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil, and you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because, the, because of the splendor I had given you, your beauty became perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. It's a really pretty picture of God choosing people and, and, and adorning and beautifying them. But the, but the very next verse talks about this, starts to talk about the spiral downward. And the fame of this bride gets to her head and she takes all these gifts and she uses the money from the jewelry to set up, set up her prostitution business and she takes the beautiful dress and the, the adorned linens and she hangs them up to make her little booth and she starts out with classy people you know, charging a lot of money kings and princes and so on and, and it just 
what, ha- what you would expect happens, happens. It just gets trashier and dirtier and uglier and to the point where it just goes down to the point where he said it gets to the point where people didn't even have to pay you anymore. Someone just, I mean, in modern terms, if someone would just give you enough coke to get high, you'd do whatever they wanted. And, um, and, and there's a number of interventions that talk, it talks about the, that the husband makes. He, he tries to do things to, he, he tries to woo her back first, and that doesn't work. And then he, he cuts off her bank account, and he tries to do th- some things to sort of discipline her activities and not let her destroy herself faster. And, and he, you know, she just gets madder and meaner and goes further off and to, to the point where he doesn't have anything left to do. There's nothing left to do but to just let her have her way with herself. And it says in the prophets of that time that he divorced her. This is what the Lord says, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? You see, because this is the people coming back from exile in Isaiah 50. It was their parents' generation that got sent to Babylon and into exile away from God's kingdom and away from his country and away from his presence. And so he says, so it's it's these people's parents that received the action of divorce. and And he says to them, I divorced your mother and your father. Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away in, in divorce. And in Jeremiah 3, a, a, a prophet from a similar time period, he says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. He's a divorced God. And he was the divorcer. On the grounds of adultery. But then, do you know what happens? He, um, there's a point at which, I mean, I'm going to put this in contemporary language because, for time's sake, too. There's a point at which she's basically in a rehab bed somewhere with one of those, like, cotton things covering herself. And it's been 20 years, but it looks like it's been 40, you know? And um, she's sleeping 18 hours a day. And he finds out that she's not on drugs and she doesn't have any Johns. And when he finds that out, he goes and he gets the wheelchair and he picks her up and he puts her in it and he wheels her home. And he puts her in the bed. He takes care of her. And he, take, he gets, you know, he takes just care. And, but you can tell she's not really in it. You know what I mean? Like there's no more drugs, there's no more Johns, but she's still not in the marriage. There's still no intimacy. They're not back together. And you can see this in the post-exilic prophets. When the, when the Israelites have come back, they're back in the promised land, they've built a second temple, they're, they're back where in God's country, but they're still not in it. If you read Malachi and if you read Zechariah, there's these places where God is saying, come back to me. He still has to say, come back to me. Even after the divorce, they've come home, but it's just, it's still not right yet. And so there's this point at which, you know, she's, she wakes up and it's actually morning still. And at the foot of the bed on the back wall, there is a dress hanging there. And it's, it's beautiful. She gets up and she walks out into the kitchen and there are like spa ladies out there waiting for her to get up. There's like a nails lady and a skin lady and all that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's a a piece of paper on the kitchen table. Will you come to the church today? Right? And she's got a choice to make. And for whatever reason, she decides to do it. And she goes and she, she does the spa lady thing. She goes and she puts the dress on and she goes to the church. And he's there. And everybody in the town is there. There's, there's the, the mayor and the high-minded politicians and all the good church people and the former Johns and the poor people. And everybody's there. His customers and clients. 
all the people who know of his good name, all the people who know about her bad name. And she comes up and, he, and the, the pastor does this wedding ceremony. And after the vows, he turns to the audience and he says, listen, as of this moment, all of my good name covers this woman. And all of her bad name is covered by me. She is my wife again. We are one, and none of you have the right to treat her in any way you wouldn't treat me. And any scorn you want to heap on her, you bring to my face. Because she is mine again. And I will lay down my life for her in any moment. She is my bride. And the John snicker and the clients decide they're going to do business with somebody else. And the mayor recognizes this guy's never going to be his running mate. And people kind of file out after it's over. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And you see, what you've got to ask yourself is, is that beautiful or is that stupid? You see, when men created gods in their image, they created Zeus and Hera. Affairs, divorces, trying to kill each other. Nobody was good. But when God revealed the divine union that he chose to have with human beings, it was that of the husband who would bear with a prostitute to the very end, which means this. If you are a divorcee, somebody who's received divorce, um, you have not suffered more than God suffered in trying to love a spouse. You don't even have to turn to Jesus in his incarnate state as a human being to say, God suffered what I suffered. You don't even need the incarnation. God the Father suffered what you have suffered, and much more in seeking to love a very wayward bride. In all the harm that has been done to you, he has experienced, and he knows way beyond anything you've even conceived of yet, no matter how bad it was for you. And if you are the one who has done the divorcing, you just ask yourself, is the God who chased this woman one who would leave off chasing you? I don't think so. I don't think you've outdone the human race. You might think about yourself as a great sinner, but you're a few billion people's worth behind. I mean, think about that. God suffered the marital disgrace of our whole race, guys. Our whole race. He has been scorned and spurned by billions of spiritual spouses. And he remains the divorced pursuer. And you've got you to ask yourself, is that beautiful or is it stupid? If it's stupid, then Christianity isn't for you, okay? And find comfort somewhere else and believe you're a good person. Do whatever you want. But if you see that that's beautiful, that is Jesus is the note in the wedding. He is the final stamp. He is the, you're back, but you're not really in this, but I want to make a brand new covenant with you. And then he is the one who can say, in that context of husbands, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. That's not loving a good wife. That's loving a terrible wife. 
But if we really see the beauty in it and we want to be loved by him, one of the, the fruits in our own hearts is going to be we're also going to want to be like him. Which makes this whole thing look a lot different when we live it out. Some people are going to say, you know what, if that's what it is, it's better to just not get married. And there's a lot of people in this generation doing that. One of the reasons that divorce rates have come down slightly is so many people have just not gotten married. But for those of us who want to try to accept it as deeply as we can, deeply as we can I think one of the things that we will find is that knowing that God and knowing that he believes that way about marriage and divorce, that we'll find that to be the very fire of our romance and the very energy of all true and lasting affection. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.